This is the Fostering Church Podcast, giving you and your church clarity about where to focus so that you can help provide more than enough for children and families in foster care in your community. Here are your hosts, Jason Johnson and Jason Weber. Hey, welcome to the Fostering Church Podcast. I'm Jason Johnson, and I'm here with my friend, Jason Weber. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jason. Man, it's hard to believe, but today's episode will actually tip us over the halfway point through this whole series. As we've mentioned, the Fostering Church podcast is a limited series, only seven episodes, six of which unpack pillars of what an actively engaged church in foster care looks like. Today is episode four, and we're covering a big one, tangible support. That's right. And if you're a person that likes to count and keep track and you're like a spreadsheet kind of person, uh, here's the breakdown. So far, we've given an overview uh, of all six pillars in episode one. We covered recruitment and discipleship in episode two. And then in episode three, we covered communication. If you haven't listened to those yet, uh, we definitely want to encourage you to go back and check them out. For sure. For sure. And today's topic of tangible support is an important one. But before we dive in, Jason, you know what I have for you? I do. A very important question. So you ready for this? Lay it on me, brother. All right. It's a good one. Have you ever run a marathon? (laughs) 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 Oh, Yeah, no. Yeah, no, no. You know, for such a long time. I mean, I, I have been 29 years old for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so <laughs> for a very long time, uh, I just would hear people talk about, you know, well, if you just, if you just stick with it, if you just run long enough, you know, you get a running high and you get to that point where you get right. that. And I have just, I just tried running so many times over the decades. And I just came to the conclusion that's just dumb. Yeah, it's that's dumb. just not true. They're lying. Yeah. Um, now I will say during the pandemic, my family and I, we have run, we've started to run short distances. Mm-hmm. I will say at times I have come to even look forward to it, but that is a very recent development in the last year. Interesting. Maybe you look forward to it because it's, um, you're creating memories with your family, right? Maybe, I, I don't know. Would you say, you know, I wouldn't mind maybe if I created memories with my family in a different way, but for now it's running and it's, it's working for us. That's, that's good. For me, the runner's high is when I actually stop running, where I like get on the <laughs> treadmill and I think, um, you know what? I'm a middle-aged man. I'm a dad. And sometimes dads just need to go for a run. That seems like a good dad thing to do. So I'll, I'll psych myself up and I'll go and I'll start doing it. And then about a minute in, I stop. And then that's when the high kicks in. I'm like, this feels great to not be running anymore. I love this. I don't understand people who run for fun. I don't get it. My dad, when he hit 50, he decided he was going to start running marathons. And it just, it changed everything. It's like, who are you, father? You're not the man that I grew up with. You know? <laughs> um, I don't get it. Um, I'm fascinated by people who do it, but it's just, you got one life to live and don't spend it running. I mean, look, I'm going to run to defend the life of my wife and daughters. And I'll even run like to chase a ball in a game to a certain point, And then I get tired, but you know, that's about it. I can't really come up with another scenario in which I want to run. So if the threat to your wife and daughters is 26 miles away, <laughs> they're just, they're out of luck. Um, you know, I've, I've actually often thought, you ever watched movies where like the detective 
the the out of shape detective in a suit and tie and dress shoes is sprinting down the New York street and catches up with the super fast criminal. Yeah. Um, I've often thought like in the heat of the moment, like what would my body be capable of? So maybe, maybe in the heat of the moment, I could run a full marathon to defend the life and honor of my wife and daughters. But frankly, I just hope I never have to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it happens within a 5k, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I'll, I'll mention that to them, look, if you guys are ever going to get in danger, make sure it's like less than a, a football field. <laughs> hey, all right. Well, enough about running. And I ask you that because our guest today, Sarah Norris, has not only recently run a marathon, she's actually recently run two, which just blows my mind. And you'll never guess when she decided to start training for them and where she actually ran one of them. It's wild. All right, let's go to that conversation with Sarah. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Sarah, Johnson was telling me that you've recently accomplished a pretty significant feat. Tell us about that. Uh, so over quarantine and lockdown, I decided to run two marathons. Not just one. You didn't decide to just do one Dose. crazy thing. You thought, let's do two, right? Tell us why. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's my, always my big question. Just in general, when I see people run for fun, I think, why? So like, where did that come from? Is that something you've always wanted to do? And you thought, man, now no better time than now or what? I, I love to run. I don't, I had not done a marathon previously, um, but I hate competition and I don't love crowds. So anytime my running friends would suggest, oh, let's get together and do a marathon, I would say that sounds terrible. So over lockdown and, you know, everything being quiet, I thought, okay, I can do this and no one will bother me. Nice. Well, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying, you're saying that not only did you run marathons, but you did it alone. I, the first one was on a treadmill, which I do not recommend. You ran a marathon on a treadmill? Yeah, it was pretty awful. But then the second one I did outside. What did you look at the whole time? I am intimately familiar with the squirrels in my backyard now. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Like that sounds so hard. I mean, running a marathon sounds so hard. Doing it on a on a treadmill. It's okay. I had my super supportive husband uh, who came out for the last leg and sat on our porch swing on our back porch where the treadmill is and ate a bag of chips in front of me. Saying, you can do it. <laughs> That's, that is awesome. Well, I'm going to confess to you guys, actually, I, I, I've been debating for the last 30 seconds whether or not to share this, but I actually went to the gym this morning and I got on the treadmill and I ran for about 45 seconds and I felt something weird in my ankle. So I stopped because I figured, you know what? I'm pushing 42 and it's just not worth pretending that I'm something that I'm not on this machine. So totally understood. And, and then you hours and hours. That's crazy. So, well, that's awesome. And actually, you know, we joke, but man, congratulations. Yeah. That's super awesome. Really great. Yeah. Very few people can say that. So in the middle of all of that, you're also a wife, a mom, a ministry leader at your church. And so can you just tell us a little bit about your family and how your family came about even, and then your role at the church uh, in the ministry? 
Sure. I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and our church has a ministry called True Vine Ministries. It's our foster and adoptive support ministry, and it also comes alongside vulnerable kids all around our city in different capacities. And I am married, and um, I have two kiddos. They are seven and eight, and we have one adopted and one bio. Awesome. Awesome. And um, I've actually got to spend time at your church and with a lot of the leaders of your ministry. And uh, I can personally vouch that it's just so fantastic and dynamic what you guys are doing there. So we're grateful to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we were grateful to have you. So Sarah, you know, for a lot of people who may never have fostered or adopted or opened their home to a child uh, in some capacity, it might be a little difficult for them to understand what makes the needs of these families different from the needs of any other family, uh, particularly for families that are fostering. Others might ask, why do they need so much extra tangible support? Uh, How would you answer that? I would say uh, if you have someone who needs to better understand the why of supporting foster families, my number one tip for people is always get them in proximity to a foster family. Uh, And then that question becomes elucidated pretty quickly. We have care communities at our church that wrap around our foster families. And one thing we say is, you know, you might drop that meal off and you might walk into a pretty nice house that's same as yours. And the house is fairly clean and everything looks pretty normal. And there's not like crazy chaos going on. Uh, And people sometimes wonder, did they even want this meal? Was there anything, did I do anything useful? Mm. And what we would say to that is because you bought that meal, because you went to the grocery or ordered pizza and had it delivered, the family was then able to clean the house or take the kids to the park and spend that time intentionally with their foster kiddos. So what you are doing is empowering and equipping a foster family to do the thing they are called to do. Yeah, that's good. And there's so many unique dynamics that foster families have to wrestle through and navigate each day and each week and each month, um, piles of paperwork and check-ins and visits and unexpected appointments at times. And so there's a whole nother layer of, I don't want to say complication, but um, there's just a whole nother layer of stuff. And as you're saying, to just kind of gently remove one or two of those little things from their plate can make such a significant difference. You know, for, for us personally, we, when, when we first became foster parents and we had families in our church bringing meals, um, it was wonderful. I mean, mostly wonderful until they like brought a beef casserole that nobody wanted to eat, you know, but that's a whole nother story, but you know, and it would never be the case that, that we would stand there and receive that meal and say, thank you for doing what you're doing, but I want to be clear before you leave. What we're doing in here is far more important than what you're doing by bringing this meal. Of course not. We would we would say we can't do what we're doing in here without you doing what you're doing. And even for those who are bringing the meals or who are providing that tangible support, the blessing that it is for them as as well, you know. So, Sarah, how have you seen people really respond to that um, wrap around families and and discover, wow, I did this to be a blessing to the foster families in our church and community, but it's actually been a blessing for us as well. How have you seen that play out? Gosh, I have a thousand different ideas when I think about this question, just having the opportunity to talk to people who have served our foster families. Uh, I know 
in one situation, we had a single foster mom who had four or five kiddos um, at home at that time. She lived on one side of the town and our church is on another. She had a foster daughter who was in high school who really wanted to attend youth group, but it was just not possible, not feasible for her because um, she lived on the other side of town and had four or five other kiddos at the house. So part of her care community was a couple of the moms stepped up and decided to trade shifts and take this foster daughter to youth group every week. It was simple. It was a 30-minute drive one way. They'd hang out for an hour, have coffee, take her back home, and that was it. What happened over time from that faithfulness and transportation, which seemed so small, was that girl chose Jesus as her Savior and a couple of months later chose to be baptized at our church. And so through their faithfulness in doing the mundane, they were able to see, oh no, this this directly impacts the kingdom. This has an absolute direct line. So that would be the first one I think of. I also think of, you know, we have a lot of um, guys, I would say, who feel, I don't like to cook and I don't love childcare. I don't really want to hang out with a bunch of kids. So how am I useful here? At our church and in the care communities that we serve, we have several single foster moms and they just don't have the bandwidth to do repairs on their homes, uh, to fix appliances or drywall issues and having people step in. Certainly we have women who can do those things too, but I find that some of the men in our church who weren't really sure what their part would be in these communities have found a real ability to serve these tangible needs, mowing lawns, putting together furniture, stuff like that. Um, Also, the idea that we had one family who completely powered their home, not powered, sorry, completely heated their home with a wood-burning stove. So we'd have these guys, these families come out one day a year and do this giant, like they would chop wood all day in a forest. They would haul Mm. back to the house. That's cool. And now the family has heat for the winter and they didn't have to do it. And they could focus on their six kiddos that they had at home. So that might be the first uh, ever foster care ministry lumberjack day I've ever heard of. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I'm gonna brand it. There's your new branding, <laughs> one an event every year. Yeah. And I imagine, I imagine those guys out there lumberjacking were probably having a pretty fun time yeah. doing it. So, and they'd say, oh yeah, it, it was fun for us to be able to do something super practical for a family. That, that's awesome. You know, we, we've had a guest on, um, who's fantastic. He's a pastor at a church actually fairly close to you. And, and he made the comment, he said, you know, it's really fun uh, when he sees people engage in, in very simple ways. Um, and then the light bulb kind of comes on and, and they realize this counts, you know, like this actually counts what, what feels small and can maybe we can we can say ah it just doesn't feel very significant in the grand scheme of things we would say no no that it counts it's so so important well and i would add to that saying i i say this all the time you know it's a long con right serving people is a long game mm-hmm. and there's a quote Uh, People often overestimate what they can do in two years, underestimate what they can do in 10. We have a woman at our church who 10 years ago decided to help with this little garage sale. The church was going to put on a garage sale. Her background is kind of in business and media. 
So she felt like she was really good. She could do that, kind of communicate it to our city. And she put on this garage sale with a few people. It was small, brought some money in. The money went directly to, we have an adoption grant that we are funded, uh, that we fund through LifeSong helped with that. So we just celebrated our 10th anniversary of the sale and we made the most we've ever made. We made our like our second highest grossing ever, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And it all goes mm. back into our community, back into our adoption funds, back into supporting our foster families. And she has seen that grow over time. What came from, honestly, just her heart to serve her church, do something small in the best way that she knew how. And she was faithful to it. And over time, it blossomed. And now it is, you know, we have the largest indoor garage sale in our city. And it's like a thing that our whole city looks forward to every year. So just having those, having that heart of faithfulness that even though it may be small, that God will use it and it will bear fruit. You know, I think it's important that foster families are made aware of the fact very early on, frankly, in the training process, uh, that not only should you not try to do this alone, but you can't. And I don't mean that in like an indictment kind of way, like you're not good enough, you can't do this. I actually think that's a freeing thing um, because at some point families will be confronted with this feeling like I, I can't do this alone. And that's a good thing, right? That doesn't mean that you're failing. It doesn't mean that it's not working. It means that you're recognizing this whole thing is not designed to be done alone. And now here's where the struggle can come in is how do you respond to that? You know, so many families struggle to open themselves up to the support of others around them. You know, they might be thinking, well, I got myself into this mess. I'm not going to burden anybody else with it. Right. And as leaders, as those listening who are working with families in our churches and in our ministries, that if we can create a safe place for those families to feel like this is a place where I can open myself up and ask for the help that I need. And asking for help isn't a sign of failure. It actually is steps towards great success. Um, that's when they can finally get the help that they need and can really unlock and everyone can do something culture. You know, we say to families often, you know, if you're unwilling to, to really lean into the support of others around you, not only will you suffer, but in some cases you're depriving others around you from doing their something. And we don't mean that in a guilt trip kind of way, but just understanding this is a bigger story that we're all participating in and it takes all of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And, you know, as I, as I listen to, to you guys talk about this, I, I am reminded of a conversation I recently had with a couple of leaders uh, out of Kansas city. During that conversation, we were talking about this, this barrier that, there is to get into foster care. It for most people, it feels like there's this six foot wall um, that you have to jump in order to be able to get into foster care. And largely, that's because uh, every time we talk about foster care, historically, we talk about becoming a foster parent or adopting. And when we when we bring things down to tangible support and meeting the kinds of physical needs, Sarah, that you've been talking about. Um, that we take that six foot wall and we turn it into six inch steps. Mm. And so uh, when we think about those six inch steps, I, I'm just wondering when have you, have you seen times when people start doing those six inch steps and 
in that process, they actually decide, hey, it's it's time to take the wall. <laughs> We've seen enough <laughs> that we can take the wall. It's good. It's good. Yeah, definitely. We try at our church to create a culture, just like you were saying, uh, Jason, about a culture of openness, a culture that when we do this, we do this together. So we want it to be really apparent up front before people even jump in that this is a community and nobody needs to do it alone. Nobody should do it alone. And, um, and then creating all of those opportunities for people to step in, in whatever capacity. And then that way they get in proximity to a family. And then once they spend time and maybe their eyes are open to this world of like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know. I didn't know there were so many kids in our community in need or wow. I didn't realize, um, you know, all that our foster parents had to do. And so it makes me want to do more. And then once they're doing more, they say, oh, I really want to get involved. We had a couple at our church. We have a couple at our church. When I first met them, they were babies. They didn't have any kiddos. They hadn't been married for super long. And they decided they wanted to host through Safe Families. And I was so excited to have them. I was a little nervous because their first hosting, they had a couple of kids and I was loading up the trunk of their car with baby gear. And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, is this the worst thing ever? Are they going <laughs> to just like drown in all of this child, all these children and things? Mm. They killed it. They loved it. They went on to host over a dozen kids through Safe Families over the next year. And what that did then was they then turned their eyes and they saw the need in the community and they decided to become foster parents. Mm. And after they became foster parents, they adopted um, their three kiddos who they have with them now. And now they're hopping back into the hosting because Mm. they've been home for a while and they know there's support. They know there's community. Um, They have great wraparound care and they know the need is still there. So absolutely. Mm. Mm. Yes, we have seen that time and again. Even to that, we're seeing nationally, um, particularly an organization that works with a lot of churches, helping them build wraparound teams and, and care communities. And they're even discovering some data within their own structure that shows about a third of of new foster families that are stepping up in the churches they work with are coming out of these care communities. And they've been given these six inch step opportunities that they can take. And then they've said, you know what, we've gotten so close now that we see it and we can feel it and we're ready to take the wall. And, you know, in all of this, one of the big caveats is that's not the expectation for everyone, right? We're not um, we're not playing this manipulation game. Like if I could just get you to bring a meal, then I'm going to hook you in at some point, right? No, you know, there are cases where the absolute best place that someone can continue to serve long-term faithfully is in that tangible support space, wrapping around families, 100%. There are also cases, as you've shared, where someone starts there, they end up a little further downstream. And and they would say, I don't know that I'd ever be here doing what I'm doing had someone not given me that six-inch step opportunity. So Sarah and Jason, I actually have a question for either or both of you. Uh, it strikes me that, that sometimes uh, this area of tangible support, it can feel disconnected from... Uh, relationship. It can feel disconnected from actually uh, meeting a real need. Like, like sometimes we create places in our churches to meet a physical need, but when we look, we realize, well, that, 
wasn't really a need that needed to be met. And so sometimes tangible support gets used as, as a counterfeit way of engaging in foster care. So people feel good about being involved, but it doesn't actually connect with real needs in the community. Uh, can you talk about where you might've seen that and, and how to fight against that? Yeah, Weber, that's such a great, great point. And I'll share even a very specific example from our own church when I was pastoring our church and some things that we had to navigate through and adjust, bringing meals and tangibly supporting families. I quickly realized that kind of inherent in a lot of us is this need to be seen. And it can trickle into my need to be seen serving, right? Uh, And so super practically, what it meant sometimes is, let's say a family is bringing a meal or someone's bringing a meal to a family and they show up at the witching hour, you know, 5.30 to drop off a casserole and the kids are crazy and, you know, and everybody's hungry. The last thing that sometimes a family might need in that scenario is for someone to stand in their doorstep for 30 minutes to chat, right? Now, maybe that's what they need and that's what they want, but we want to give them that the option, right? And so that meant that we had to develop a system where, listen, if if what you really just need is someone to drop a meal off for you, then put a cooler on your front porch and they're going to leave it in the cooler and they're going to text you when they drive away and say it's there, right? And that meant we had to kind of turn to those people who were the meal bringers and say, listen, if that bothers you, that you can't be seen and and thanked in the moment, then there's deeper issues going on here, right? Um, we want you to be okay with bringing a meal, dropping it in the cooler, driving away, and having not been seen. Um, because the objective here is not to satisfy our need to be needed. It's to meet a real life practical need for people who need it most. Yeah, I think that's great, Jason. And I think that I would just support what you said. And also, I think it goes back to that identity issue, right? If the if what we're trying to do is be seen, which is so easy to slip into, our identity is not... It needs to be realigned, right? We need to get back to center of why we're doing this, what kind of people we are. We're people who do hard things. Sometimes hard things mean not being seen. Sometimes it means being quiet and not getting recognition. Oftentimes it means that because that's what our foster parents are going through. You know, that's what our fam- our adoptive and foster families in the quiet hours at night, you know, people aren't seeing some of the struggles that they go through. So because of who we are, we should be willing to do that in kind. Mm-hmm. That's so good. And and, you know, Weber, you've really opened up a can here. It's it's so good. But, you know, if you're a ministry leader listening to this and, and you're thinking, OK, what does this mean for us and our ministry and our church and our community? Just the encouragement would be to check the, the ways that you're communicating to people and the motivation that you're providing to serve them, because we just want to be careful that we're not using families foster families, kinship families, biological families, uh, or the kiddos that they represent, that we're not using them as service projects, mm. um, maybe. Um, Say that. But we're... we're <laughs> <laughs> preach it. We're, you know, we're really engaging them relationally for the long haul. And Sarah, you've, you've hit on that perfectly. Like, this is the long game. And um, we want to walk with families for the long game 
together uh, so that they thrive and and we're all in this together. Well, Sarah, you know, I have uh, one more question. As a family that has received this kind of support, what is it meant for you? What has it opened up for you to leave yourself open to receiving that? What difference has it made in your life? When we have really hard seasons, whether that's because of foster care or because of adoption or whatever trauma or just our own baggage, it can be really hard in the moment to see like what the point is and why we're going through this and to second guess, you know, what felt so sure before. And then when someone to be vulnerable enough to let someone else step in. So for me, it was having a circle of a few other moms specifically who just got it, who just got it. They didn't have to have advice. They just could be there and listen to me. Um, I realized then down the road as we grew and found healing and moved forward and, you know, learned to care, care better for our family. It's just what Jesus said, you know, we go through things so that we can then walk alongside others and just the opportunity. So when you are struggling, opening yourself up to being vulnerable with someone else or letting them bring you a meal or letting them come in and like do your laundry, which is just like terrifying for a lot of parents. I know. <laughs> we are laundry. Letting people serve you in that way, know that what you're doing is letting people be the body of Christ, letting people be the hands and feet of Jesus so that then eventually that's going to be a role, hopefully, that you'll be able to fulfill for other people. And it's just all about, you know, we, we aren't just givers, we're receivers as well. That's how this works. Uh, so just taking the opportunity to trust that being vulnerable is not a weakness. It is, in fact, a vital role of being a part of the body. Well, Sarah, that's such a great way to end that vulnerable is not a weakness. It's a vital part of being a part of the body that for the for the ear to recognize, I really need the eye and the foot to recognize, I really need the hand. Um, that's so good. And it's what we're talking about here, that we can't do this alone, nor should we have to. And so if you're listening to this as a ministry leader, as a pastor, as an advocate in your community, we just want to encourage you to take your next best steps forward. And it might mean just asking families, like, tell me about your day. Tell me about your week. Tell me about your month. And just learn and research and, and trust that opportunities to do something that matters for them will naturally and inevitably arise. And as our friend Kondo has said, um, it counts like it, this counts. It's, it's important. So Sarah, thank you so much for spending your time with us. We are incredibly grateful that you would carve it out and share. It was so, so good to connect with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Love what you guys are doing and have done and just so excited to keep listening and learning. Wow. She was great. And what an incredible reminder of how much foster families have to juggle along this journey and why wrapping around them with practical, tangible support that counts is so important. Absolutely. You know, I love how this particular pillar uh, probably most practically gives feet to that idea that everyone can do something in foster care. We absolutely want to see more and more families open their homes to children, but we also absolutely want to see more and more people identify what their something might be. 
if it's not opening their home. That something likely will have to do with practically coming alongside families to support them along the journey. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we believe that more than enough for children and families involved in foster care is only possible when everyone finds their something and does it. And this episode was a fantastic reminder of that. For sure. And, you know, just a reminder that if you're following along with these episodes, be sure to check out the show notes where we have a link to that PDF that covers all six of these pillars, goes into more depth on each of them. And it's just a great companion uh, for you as you listen to the podcast, but also as a way of communicating these truths to others in your church. So be sure to check that out. And while you're there uh, at morethanenoughtogether.org, you click on the podcast link and you find the Fostering Church podcast. But when you go to that podcast link, you'll find other podcasts as well that the Christian Alliance for Orphans offers. And I think there's some things there that may also help you do your thing where you live. That's right. Well, today was great. And so thanks for hanging out with us and we will see you next time. This has been the Fostering Church Podcast. Join the Jasons and their guests for all seven episodes dedicated to helping your church provide more than enough for children and families in your community. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so that we can help more churches help more children and families. The Fostering Church Podcast is a production of More Than Enough, a collaborative movement facilitated by the members and partners of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. For resources related to this episode, click on the podcast link at morethanenoughtogether.org. That's morethanenoughtogether.org.